Hi and welcome back to the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast and today it is episode 84 and with me today I have Professor Dylan Thompson. Hi Dylan, how are you doing? Hi Lauren, very well, thank you very much. So, um, we have had a number of uh, your colleagues on this uh, podcast before um, and I'll discuss them in a minute because it's kind of related actually um what we did with um Javier Gonzalez and, and James Betts um which is related to this podcast today but for folks that um would uh, would like an introduction to you if, if you could uh, tell us who you are and what you're up to mm. uh, so yes I'm a, I'm a human physiologist um with a particular interest in physical activity exercise and energy balance um and kind of more recently we've been very much looking at some of the kind of molecular mechanisms involved in adipose tissue and changes within adipose tissue and um, kind of that has come from some of the work that we're going to be talking about I think to, to, to today um, and what we've been using over the last few years are a variety of different tools to try to assess um, physical activity in a much broader context um, than we used to do. Um, I very much started life out as a, an exercise physiologist, very much interested in structured exercise and then through some of the kind of uh, uh, learning uh, that we went through um, in response to some of the techniques we were using, um, I've kind of broadened my view somewhat. Um, <clears throat> so, um, I mean, um, one, one of the things I was going to say is um, a, a very important uh, paper and study for us uh, that we conducted um, over 10 years ago uh, involved um, recruiting middle-aged men from the uh, community, and we put them onto an exercise programme. And um, over the course of the exercise program, it was over six months, they were exercising um, at the end of that four times a week. Uh, and they were exercising at close to 70% of their VO2 max. Um, and what we also used alongside that were tools to assess physical activity outside exercise. And I think that's what was the most surprising in this particular study. Yeah, I, it's really interesting, um, the work that's been coming out of um, Bath University. Uh, as I mentioned uh, just at the beginning, I've done a few podcasts recently, um, episode 71 with Dr. Javier Gonzalez, and we talked about uh, breakfast, and, and um, I know you guys did the Bath breakfast study, and that was utterly fascinating. So... Um, I think uh, listeners, if they haven't already heard that one, they, they should. Um, very, very interesting. And also, we had Dr. James Betts uh, on, and we were talking about energy balance, imbalance, and interactions. And um, that, uh, again, was a very popular uh, topic. And um, there's going to be uh, maybe some similarity to a certain extent, because obviously you guys conduct a lot of um, on the same research projects. But, you know, today... Um, I thought it would be a good idea for us to discuss um, something that you um, have done a lot of work in, which is the relevance of uh, physical, physical activity um, in terms of energy expenditure. And, you know, as I started to read up uh, behind this, it, you know, it did strike me that, of course, um, you know, we, we put so much into um, the importance of, of testing things now. I've done podcasts on... The importance of testing and not guessing so to speak i love the fact that we have the technology um you know uh, and there's various levels of technology both in the lab but also in the field or you know in people's homes wearable gadgets that sort of thing that help estimate stuff but it's that term estimate 
Um, and there's a lot of assumptions that are made. And, and it's always popular for people to discuss things like calories in, calorie out concept. You know, are calories even important um, as it relates to energy balance? And of course, you, you, you hear all sorts of interesting stuff, particularly on the unregulated um, uh, sort of social media and, and that sort of thing. But when we read the research, we read the papers, um, we're always talking about energy expenditure in terms of primarily what we see through exercise. We, we talk about, you know, various ways of ass assessing energy intake, um, whether it's self-reported food diaries, weighing foods. I mean, there's all sorts of great ways of, of doing these things. But we rarely talk about or hear about the relevance of uh, not exercise as activity, but all the other physical stuff that goes on during the day. So maybe mm. maybe perhaps you could help us with a few definitions because I've, I've i've come to realize how important it is for us to define these these terms that we're going to use um um otherwise the you know we, we, this sort of gets lost so maybe you could help us understand what we mean by these terms like physical activity exercise yeah. and so on so i mean I, I might use the the paper that i mentioned before as an example just to illustrate a few key key points but um but in this ex exercise study that we ran over six months, the people did exercise. We supervised the exercise. We knew we were doing it. And this was what we might consider structured exercise. They were doing it because we asked them to. They were doing it because we were hoping they were going to get health benefits from doing that kind of structured exercise. But what we found when we come to analyze the data at the end of that was that this structured exercise actually only increased their total energy expenditure by around about 10%. So less than 200 kilocalories a day once you worked out um, uh, the, the, the exercise spread out over the course of the, the week. And actually, when we came to use these other techniques, we found that non-exercise physical activity, so all the other physical activity that you do, was very, very considerable. I mean, they were expending, and these were people who came into our lab telling us that they didn't do exercise, that they were sedentary, they were inactive. This was their self-reported activity level. Mm. Um, when we came to quantify that, it was close to a 1,000 kilocalories a day. So we had introduced structured exercise, but all the other physical activity, the stuff that they weren't even really aware of, added up to a very, very sizable component. And this is non-exercise physical activity. Um, it's the kind of things that you do and you might not even be aware of you expending energy through physical activity. You might be fidgeting, you might be moving around, you might be shopping, you might be doing daily chores, um, you might be commuting, um, all sorts of um, things where you might be thinking you're doing a particular task, but you're also doing physical activity at the same time. Um, and this adds up in many people to be a very sizable and important component of energy expenditure. And so this paper very much changed our view because we started to realise, and perhaps we'd been very naive until that point, um, but we started to realise that whilst exercise is, of course, extremely important and there are loads of very clear benefits associated with exercise, all this other stuff, this non-exercise physical activity, and sometimes this is referred to as NEAT, um, non-exercise activity thermogenesis, this is quantitatively extremely uh, important. So I think, I think we need to make a distinction between what we consider exercise, where people are doing things perhaps because we've asked them to, or they're doing it for health reasons, or they're doing it um, uh, um, very deliberately, um, versus all of, the other, uh, all of the other stuff. And I think um, certainly 
until about 10 years ago, I'd been rather naive in approaching this and thinking that it was all about exercise, when actually um, the bigger picture is much more sophisticated and actually much more interesting than that. Um, and just again to pr provide a little bit of context because you, you asked for that, um, uh, I think one of the other things that people um, often uh, think is that um, uh, large proportions of the population in the UK are um, uh, inactive. That's a term which is used very, very frequently. It's a, it's a term I very much dislike um, because even the most sedentary person in the UK will expend hundreds of kilocalories through this non-exercise physical activity. And um, the, the median PAL, the typical PAL in the UK, uh, so this is physical activity level, which is um, the amount of energy you expend uh, uh, through physical activity normalised to your uh, resting metabolic rate. The average PAL in the UK is, is 1.6, which means that a typical person is expending over 600 kilocalories a day through movement. Now, most of that won't be exercise. It will be all of this other uh, physical activity. So it's, it's quantitatively very important. We're talking about a large amount of energy being expended through physical activity. And I suppose what we need to try to understand is how important that is from a health perspective. Absolutely. And, and of course, the, I mean, there's also a big difference between each individual, isn't there? That was something that also struck me both in my conversation with uh, James Betts on a similar topic, but when you start looking, you know, not just reading conclusions and so on, but when you actually look into the data, um, especially in a couple of papers that you sent me, it was, it was really quite striking how much variation there is between people. Yes, no, absolutely. I mean, it, it can vary from a few hundred kilocalories a day to well over a thousand kilocalories a day. And you've got to bear in mind that I mean, that's huge. That's huge. It's absolutely huge. And, and yeah. people might not be aware of this. I mean, if you sit down with those people, they won't be able to tell you based upon um, their self-reported physical activity that they're doing much of this stuff. Um, so I think this is where one of this is where we've got one of the, one of the problems is that we're not capturing this variability amongst the populations that we're studying either from a research perspective or even from a kind of clinical perspective, if you're working with a, uh, a patient or you're working with somebody who wants to try to lose weight or all these kinds of things. It's something that's just um, very much um, overlooked. Um, it's interesting how we're so preoccupied with the word exercise, though, isn't it? I think you made a really interesting point there that there's a, there's a, big, dif there's, there's a big difference in reality between what we mean by physical activity and exercise, exercise being sort of a sub sort of category of physical activity, isn't it? And yet the significance of all sorts of physical activities, like you say, can be so significant that, as you said, can, can account for more than just a few hundred calories of energy expenditure. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, and we have to we have to try to put this into context. I mean, um, if somebody's doing exercise and they're expending on average 200 kilocalories a day through exercise over a week, but they're already expending a thousand kilocalories a day through non-exercise physical activity. You kind of have to say, in that context, which of those is the bigger physiological stimulus? Which is the thing which is going to be helping them the most from a, a, a health perspective? Uh, and of course, in, in, in some situations, you might um, end up introducing exercise, um, and it might, if they have low NEAT, uh, low non-exercise physical activity. Um, it might double their overall physical activity energy expenditure. But in other people, if they already have high NEAT, you might increase their um, uh, overall 
physical activity energy transferred by only 10% or something like that. So again, you know, uh, understanding these issues is important um, in terms of unraveling exactly what's important from a mechanistic perspective. But it's also important because if we're going to give good advice to people, it needs to be in the context of the totality of their behaviour and not just an individual part of that behaviour. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, as you know, just before we started recording, I was explaining some of the reasons why I developed this this podcast. And, you know, you, you actually you might become famous for saying context more often than me, which is <laughs> which is brilliant. But you, I don't feel that one can underuse that term that I have developed that further to other words as well now. Um, but knowledge is something that we get very preoccupied with. And, and you see that in... Um, particularly, you know, sort of in the health and fitness industry. People are, you know, extracting information out of books. They might even take them out of papers, but it, it, it's, it, you know, it's always lacking in, in context. And um, this, whole, like, this whole area of energy balance is really popular. And, and, and it's quite simple because, of course, we exist in a situation where more so than ever, people have weight issues. Um, and it's trying to understand you know not just the causes but what role we as practitioners can have in helping to solve that problem and it can be a i guess a pretty difficult place for us to be when we realize that us as exercise professionals may only be playing a small role um and in one of your papers and i'll link to all of this you you wrote this um uh, features uh, piece in Physiology News about um, physical activity for physiologists. I thought it was great. Um, and you referred to exercise prescription representing a supplementary stimulus. And that's a really interesting thought where we start to think that what we're doing is, you know, in terms of prescribing exercise, is a supplement. In the same way, when we think of supplements as it relates to food and nutrition, it, it's not an instead of. We talk about a food first approach and um, then we might consider supplementation where it's appropriate and evidence supports that but we don't really think of exercise as a, as a supplement maybe we could discuss that a bit more because i think that that's going to really fascinate people well i mean i think the way you just described it there is a is a wonderful way to, to 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 see it and i think that's one of the things which um i've struggled with recently when you start seeing papers or grant applications and these kinds of things is that people often assume that before they put the exercise in place, there was nothing already there. So they think that it's the exercise is sitting on uh, a baseline of zero. Um, so, you know, beforehand there was nothing. You put exercise in place, you've changed their behavior by an enormous amount. But you can't think of it like that. You have to understand that before you put the exercise in, there was something there. In some people, it might be just a few hundred kilocalories a day of, of, of non-exercise movement. Uh, in some people, it might be a very much uh, more significant proportion than that. And so it's, the, the exercise that you're putting in is very much supplementing all of this other stuff. So what I would agree with is that you probably need to try to, if you can, get some of this other stuff right before you start manipulating exercise. Um, although there is a, a little bit of a caveat to that. I mean, of course, there are some people who perhaps through the nature of their jobs or, or, or um, uh, other aspects of their lifestyle, have no options, you know, they, they are tied to a desk or something like that, or they have to sit down, a bus driver or something like that. Um, 
in those particular people, you might end up saying, well, look, you, you have a problem with the rest of your physical activity because you're going to find it hard to manipulate that, e you know, even, even though there's a biological imperative for some of this stuff and we might get onto it later on. You might find it very hard to manipulate that. So in that particular case, the exercise might offset some of the very negative impacts of the non or the absence of, of non-exercise physical activity. Um, so I think it's really important. And I think just coming back to one of the other points you made, I, th I, made, I think it's not just important for energy balance because this non-exercise physical activity also is a very powerful physiological stimulus. I mean, we know from uh, bed rest studies, for example, or even reduced activity models, if we take away this other activity in people who don't already do exercise, then you lose kilos of muscle within, within weeks. Um, we know that this low-level uh, non-exercise activity, I mean, uh, you know, relatively low-intensity uh, type of activity, I mean, it increases metabolic rate threefold. I mean, that, 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 that's going to have a very powerful physiological effect. It increases adrenaline concentrations threefold as, as well. You know, you mobilize very significant amounts of fat from your uh, adipose tissue. So I think it's very important from an energy perspective, but it's also important from a, a physiological perspective as well. Indeed, and um, you, you made me think of something, and um, again, just because performance nutrition is my main area of, uh, of interest, but um, again, something that comes from there, which is this, this idea that they've even televised, is the idea of uh, secret eating, where um, uh, people, it's not that they're trying to hide it from other people, they're just consciously, sorry, subconsciously eating when they don't realise that they're actually doing it, and their classic example is, when one's cooking, you know, you start nibbling on stuff and it's something that genuinely they didn't realise they were doing when it comes to, for example, um, reporting, self-reporting or via interview, um, describing what they'd eaten, you know, the day before even. It's, it's just something that just doesn't come to mind. Um, but what about the idea of secret exercising? <laughs> um, I'm sure, you know, we t fidgeting, people, you know, pace around, that sort of thing. It, I mean, how significant could that concept be, you think? Uh, well, I mean, it, um, it, it could add up to enormous amount. I mean, we know that, um, uh, you know, fidgeting can increase your metabolic, well, double your metabolic rate quite easily. Not in everybody, but it, it, but it will. Um, I, I don't know how many people could tell you at the end of the day, um, how much fidgeting they, they, they did. Um, if you got two fidgeters or you had one fidgeter and, and, and somebody who uh, wasn't fidgeting and you were actually watching them, would they be able to tell you at the end of the day that they were fidgeting and burning energy? I, I'm, I'm not sure they would. So I suppose in that case, it is secret unless you have absolutely used the right tools and techniques to try to capture that, in, that, that, that information. Um, and I think that's that's for me is one of the is one of the is one of the really critical points um, of, of what we need to talk about today is that um, we can't just rely on what we're told. We, we we need to use the tools to capture all of the the behaviour. And I was trying to think of a kind of an an, an analogy or a parallel situation. And, and I think I, I think I thought of one which might be quite useful. Um, and, and and the example that I was going to give was um, that of a, a, a plant biologist. So let's say a, a, a plant biologist has developed a new fancy lamp that they think is going to help boost photosynthesis, even if it's only turned on for an hour a day or something like that. And they set up an experiment where they want to look at this new lamp and they run studies in several parts of the world, you know, in, in the UK and in, in France and Spain and in North America and so on. And they monitor very carefully the exposure to this new lamp. 
um, but they don't record exposure to the other sources of light from, from the sun. And in one location, the new lamp doesn't have much of an effect, but um, in another location, the lamp proves to be a real success. But what they haven't recorded is background light. And in the successful location, it was often very cloudy and the daylight was, was, was poor. Uh, whereas in the other location, it was often very sunny and much less of a surprise that it didn't have uh, much of an effect. Now, as physiologists, as human physiologists, we'd criticise this experiment and say, well, of course they should have recorded the background light. Why on earth didn't they think of recording that background uh, light in setting up their experiment? And yet that's what we've been doing for many years. We've been recording the exposure to the lamp, uh, our exercise, without taking into account all of this other stuff, which could be critically uh, important. No, that was a great way of, of explaining it. I love the uh, visualization that that draws up. Um, there's the, the, actually, you reminded me of uh, a great piece also found um, in the uh, Levine paper. I'll link to this. It's um, 2004 or something, I think. Um, uh, on uh, non-exercise activity thermogenesis, and he uh, presents um, his uh, hypothesis um, at the end. I'm trying to find it. Uh, yeah, the neat hypothesis of energy balance regulation, but he, he uses real-world um, analogies of um, you know bank accounts and uh, various other things. I love it. I'll link to it because it, it's a very good way for us to understand um, this. But um, again, I, I think... I think it was with James Betts we were talking a bit about this stuff and all the compensatory mechanisms that go with it. And of course, when we, when you're doing the research, you, you as the scientists, um, you're obviously trying to control as many variables as possible so that you can sort of filter away, um, you know, all, all, all of the confounding variables and all that stuff. And and of course that you know that helps you understand the mechanisms, but that isn't the same thing as we're looking at in the real world. Um, perhaps you could help us explain um, maybe the difference between what we're measuring in a laboratory environment and, and what we're actually seeing in a real world environment. Hmm. No, that's right. I mean, I mean so um, in the lab, um, we would typically capture a resting metabolic rate. Um, so we can capture that very neatly. Um, we could get people doing different forms of structured exercise and we can capture um, uh, things like energy expenditure and, and intensity and those kinds of things whilst they're doing the exercise. Um, and that, of course, is, is very, very important. Um, but what we can't capture in the lab is all of the other stuff. We, we, we struggle to capture that even in a, a metabolic chamber. Um, and the only way we can really capture that is if we let people loose and we allow them to live their normal lives and we understand how an intervention, let's say we're running an intervention study, interacts with the other things in, in, in their lives. And some of those things might change in unpredictable ways. We, we can't automatically assume that they will stay the same. They might interact with the intervention. Um, and so we have to try to capture that information using different tools and, 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 and techniques. So I think the lab provides a great way of looking at and characterizing um, a participant at baseline. You understand their resting metabolism. You understand the response to a particular stimulus. Let's say it's an exercise stimulus. But what it doesn't allow you to do is to understand how those things interact in, 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 the, in the real world. So one thing that 
you know, becomes sort of a bit more obvious. Uh, the more I've read and the more people I've interviewed about these sorts of topics, and actually more I've applied it in the real world, of course, is this problem where we're seeing in the papers and there's a study that, you know, talks about um, a certain intervention over a certain period of time. But, but a lot of these studies are done over hours. They're not even done over days, weeks or months in terms of assessing energy expenditure. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, we've, we have briefly talked with various other people um, the relevance of energy balance over the course of time. Time, um, in fact, it was James again, actually, where we talked about, you know, the time span or the, the, the period of time in which energy, energy balance actually occurs, which is not going to be minutes, hours uh, or even a day necessarily. Um, but if, if we look at this from the perspective of um, physical activity and its impact on energy balance, again, um, I'm guessing that that also is it's not just a case of looking at that within the time course of hours or a day. There's going to be a period of time um, that it's going to have an impact. No, absolutely. I mean, um, I don't know if I know what that critical period of time is, but um, it's certainly days and, and, and weeks, um, not hours. Um, and um, uh, so if you manipulate um, uh, um, uh, some aspect of energy expenditure or energy intake, then there will be a response. Um, and that response will, will take probably days to, to, to properly start to materialise. Um, and so again, I think that's where, if you have the luxury of a chamber, you could do some of these things over a week or two, perhaps in a in a in a, in a chamber. Um, but I think um, for for, in, for many questions, you need to allow the person to get back outside into into, into the real world. Yeah. No. The re the reason I actually did and why I was asking that was because again, as exercise professionals, one gets into this business of saying, you know, you need to exercise, say, three times a week, for example. But in the context of a week, that's nothing. I mean, even if it really was an hour's worth of exercise per session, um, three hours, you know, out of an entire week is pretty insignificant. Um, you know, so what, what if, I mean, what would, what would be the relevance to, say, three training sessions a week which is more than what a lot of people do particularly in a personal training environment it can be frustrating because uh, one might have a client that you only train say twice a week for example as opposed to a professional athlete who you may get to train several times a day like triathletes for example um, but that two or three sessions a week in terms of when we're talking about the relevance of of the stimulus mm. um, what, what are your thoughts on that yeah, no, I think, well, I, I, I like the way you're, you're, you're thinking. It's very much one that we share. I mean, I, I should say up front that um, I absolutely am not anti-exercise. I think exercise no. is a fantastic thing, and it's a great way to provoke lots of different types of adaptations, which could be enormously beneficial from a health perspective. So I just want to say up front that I absolutely believe in, in the importance of exercise. But you're absolutely right that if somebody exercises for three hours a, a week, let's say, so an hour three times a, a week, um, that is three hours out of um, 112 waking hours mm. if a person sleeps eight hours a, 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 a day. So we have to, I'm going to use that word context again, I apologize <laughs> for that, but we have to put it into context. I mean, it's three hours out of 112 waking hours. Mm. 
the other 100 and odd hours is going to be critically important. And we need to uh, understand what people are doing in that time. Uh, they need to understand what they're doing. They need to then understand how the exercise sits within the context of all of those other uh, other behaviours. Um, and I think this is, I mean, in terms of a kind of a methods perspective, um, this is something we can do. I mean, um, if you were running, um, uh, let's say you were running a, a comparative study and you wanted to compare young versus old uh, individuals and, and take some measurements to look at the impact of ageing, um, if you want to do that, then you could ask them questions about their exercise or you might just recruit people who don't do uh, uh, exercise. But without an assessment of physical activity in these people, you can't automatically assume that the uh, difference is due to ageing. It might just be differences due to all of this other physical activity that has di disappeared uh, over, over in the older population. Um, and so I think you have to start to build these types of tools into your um, uh, methods um, so that uh, whether you're working with uh, an individual looking at uh, trying to help them to lose weight or something like that, or whether you're trying to run a research study trying to understand the impact of a particular parameter, whether that's in, in that previous context was was was, was ageing. So um, so yeah, and I mean I think there are lots of other examples of of that as well. I mean um, we in in some of our intervention studies, um, you can put something in place. Uh, let's say you do an hour of exercise a week, and if that if that replaces or substitutes for non-exercise activity thermogenesis, you might think you've changed behaviour by a certain amount. You've increased their physical activity by 30 minutes or something like that. But if it's just reduced non-exercise activity, then the net effect could be zero. So you've just swapped one thing for another and um, you haven't supplemented their overall physical activity at all. You've just simply swapped one type of behaviour for, for, for another. So, I mean, I don't think that you can treat exercise um, as, as, as being uh, uh, similar to things like a drug, for example, where you give the drug and prior to that there was nothing that was absent before the prescription because, as, a, as we've already discussed, this, this exercise only supplements or or adds to what is already already existing and, and somewhat variable uh, physical activity. Yeah, I, I, again, uh, you know, because there's, there's quite a lot of interesting crossovers between what we talk about in nutrition and what we're talking about here in terms of exercise and physical activity. But, you know, again, um, I'm thinking that there's this, there's this lovely idea of the mythical fat burning zone. And uh, we've I've gone into this all sorts of times with other people, but... You know, when people have these discussions uh, or these thoughts about engaging in, you know, fat burning exercises or um, implementing some sort of in intervention to improve fat oxidation. And there's all sorts of, you know, great studies and different strategies one can do to increase fat oxidation. But that's not necessarily relevant to body fat loss when you consider the relevance to um, the bigger picture of energy bands because of course you might have burnt more fat in your exercise session but because you've um, eaten more uh, calories from say fats or carbohydrates your body ends up you know replacing all of that and more um, I mean do you do you think you know when we're talking about these things maybe we don't consider the bigger picture enough we, we, we maybe over science or over focus um, in in the in the compartments of these discussions rather than the whole 
the whole thing. I, I no, I absolutely do. I mean, I think we um, we've we've focused on taking a very laboratory-based approach to the science, and uh, and in many ways that's very appropriate, particularly as a starting point. But I think we need to then look beyond the lab. Uh, and, and what you just talked about there is a great example of, of, of that. I mean, if you train and uh, appropriately to increase increase your fat oxidation during exercise, and you can monitor that in 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 in, in the lab, and you can show that you know you increased your fat oxidation by thirty or forty percent in response to the same type of exercise, let's say, and that's great. That's fun, that's fantastic. Um, but how does that interact with all of the things outside the lab? I mean, coming back to this point that. If you train three times a, a, a three hours a week, um, how does that interact with the other hundred odd hours a, a week? Much of which will be activity, but at a, a, a lower level. Um, does that mean that you end up um, uh, using more fat during all other movements as well? So actually, the effect of the training could interact in a very positive way and increase fat oxidation on a minute by minute basis through all of these non-exercise activities. That's a possibility. Um, could it be the other way around? Could it be that actually, uh, particularly in the context of feeding, let's say, so people have a meal or something like that, that the suppression of fat oxidation at other times is, is greater, <laughs> which means that um, actually uh, it cancels out the effect of the, of the training. So, again, I think it just reinforces in my mind how important it is to understand things in the lab, but then to make sure that we understand how that interacts and, and, and applies to uh, what people are doing outside the, the the lab? Yeah, I mean, I you know, I I often talk about the sort of the, the practitioner's toolbox um, and the relevance of understanding how to use all these different tools, these strategies. You know, and fat, increasing fat oxidation is a good example of that. You know, it's it's um, to borrow uh, Dr. Sean Arendt's uh, phrase uh, uh, that he did at a recent conference for us, um, you know, we, we need to ask ourselves a question um, about the relevance of, of, of how we're using some of these things. And, um, you, you know, I, I guess it's best, ex best looked at from the perspective of, uh, you know, can we? Um, well, yes, we can, but should we? Um, you know, and, and, I, and I guess we, we, we often stick with the first bit where, you know, we're looking at the science and we're we're leaving it there. We're saying, yes, we can. We can improve fat oxidation by low intensity exercise, for example. But if the question is, is well, how are we going to improve um, overall uh, energy balance by increasing energy expenditure? Should we engage in that activity? And then if we're only doing three cardio sessions a week, is that necessarily the best use of that person's time? Um, because... I guess what we haven't discussed yet um, is, you know, and you mentioned it first there, of course, the benefit of exercise is, is huge. There's all sorts of things. And of course, certain kinds of exercise will increase um, muscle mass or will help to at least uh, retain what muscle mass you have. And then that um, uh, presumably has a beneficial impact on the amount of energy expended just by virtue of having more they describe it as more metabolically expensive mass don't they mm. no that's right i mean i think that's where we have to, i mean and i think your your reference to diet earlier on is, is 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 a great example i mean there isn't one 
aspect of diet which is going to be more important than another. We need to look at different aspects of diet to be able to come up with something which is really appropriate um, and, and might be considered balanced. And I think we should take the same approach for physical activity and, and exercise. I mean, um, I think that if people like to engage in low-level activity um, and it's something they can fit into their lives, then that's a, a, a great way to get some of the benefits from that type of physical activity. If they can do more than that, they can start to build in other very specific forms of exercise or even structured um, uh, physical activity in other ways. And you can start to build up um, uh, what would be considered uh, a more balanced um, uh, physical activity profile. And that's something that we've been exploring in a, in a, in a, a, a study uh, where we've been recruiting patients from primary care. Um, so, yes, I mean, I think um, uh, uh, we, we, we need to look more broadly um, and we need to take the virtues and benefits of different types of behaviours. I think we should get uh, we should be less bothered by saying this is superior to, to this, um, because I think that's often what, what, what happens. I think instead we should be saying we know this is good. If you do some of this as well and some of this, you're going to be getting a bigger bang for your buck in terms of um, uh, kind of health and metabolic benefits. Um, so yeah, I think um, uh, I think that's probably the way we need to go um, in, in in the future. And there is definitely room for very structured forms of exercise because there are some unique benefits from that, um, both metabolically uh, as well as um, uh, uh, from some of the physiological changes which take place um, and some of the adaptations which are triggered by that type of uh, exercise training. Yeah. So I, I guess really what it boils down to is um, one's expectation. Um, that you know the role that exercise will play in a weight management program and you know you hear people talk about eat less and move more um, but actually that's quite a complicated <laughs> quite a complicated thing isn't it um, and also and in some of the papers that you'd sent me you know the, the, there's some interesting classifications that we have for people and their energy levels and, and we we see it whatever we're talking about in um, uh, in our society we like to type or label people you know young old um, all sorts of um, you know uh, religion or political persuasions or whatever and of course we we, we describe people as being sedentary um, you know or active or uh, I mean maybe you could help explain um, what we mean by those terms sedentary um, and active and, and and maybe how we um, need need to explore those terms in a bit more detail so that you know they're not being misunderstood. Mm. Yeah, so I think it's um, I think it's actually enormously uh, complicated um, because um, uh, many of these terms I think are misused. I mean, we talked about inactivity earlier on. I mean, I, I don't think many people are what you would consider truly inactive. I mean, even if you take somebody and put them into bed in a long term bed rest study. They still increase their uh, uh, um, uh, overall energy expenditure by around about 20% or so above rest through movement by moving their upper body, their arms. Even chewing increases your energy expenditure by uh, uh, something like 20% above rest. So, um, so yeah. So I think um, all of these things are, are, are terms which are misused. I mean, I, I would I would probably fall back on a continuum using something like PAL, which is a normalized way to express energy expenditure through physical activity. And the continuum in my eyes goes from 
uh, a very low PAL, which would be a PAL of around about 1.3 or so, which is close to what you would see in bed rest or, 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 or very, very um, uh, low active people, all the way through to a PAL of above 2, where your overall energy, energy expenditure is, is, is um, uh, uh, twice your resting metabolic rate. Um, and that would be somebody who has a very high level of activity, probably also including some more structured exercise as well. So I always fall back to a continuum which I use in terms of PAL. And I think you could then say that um, people who are sedentary would have a low PAL and you can break up the PAL into uh, uh, different categories and different organizations use different uh, types of labels. Um, the Institute of Medicine, for example, uh, says that a, a, a PAL of 1.6 would be cast, classed as low active, um, whereas the World Health Organization, I think, uses a slightly higher threshold of 1.7 or 1.75. So, yes, I think I think we should probably think of it in terms of energy expenditure on a, on a continuum. But then above that, and this is where it does get complicated, you might have some people who do quite a bit of structured exercise, and we've seen these people in our studies, um, who might do, you know, on average over a week, 40 or 50 minutes of vigorous intensity activity uh, exercise um, a day, uh, not not every day, but and once you work it out on a daily basis. Um, but their overall PAL could still be relatively low. And coming back to labels, um, some people might have labeled those in the literature as active couch potatoes, you know, people who do structured exercise but spend the rest of the time sitting sitting around. Now, in those particular people, what, what's happening from a physiological perspective, they're getting loads of benefits from the structured exercise, but they're not burning as much energy as somebody else who might have uh, no structured exercise, but lots of lots of movement. Which of those is better? I, I don't think we, we know. Um, they're both probably better than <laughs> better than nothing. Um, but I think we need to start to think of uh, a bit like in, in, in diet. If you manipulate one thing, it might not automatically manipulate the other aspects of, of, of physical activity behavior. Um, and we need to start to unravel this uh, and work more uh, carefully. Um, I think I think the other thing I should say as well, Lauren, is that I think this is really important from an energy balance perspective. But as I said earlier on, I think it's just as important from a, a physiological perspective. And I was trying to think of another example where this is important that would be very much relevant from uh, an applied practitioner perspective. So um, if you uh, were working with an athlete, uh, let's say it's um, a sprinter who wants a very extreme phenotype, you know, very, very powerful, um, short bursts over short periods of time. Um, in that particular individual, if you only look at their training and you don't look at all of the other activity that they do, could you be missing part of a picture? What, what happens if you have a sprinter who has a very high NEAT, a high non-exercise activity energy expenditure? Could that high NEAT through their job or through their approach to life, whatever that might be, could that undermine some of your training-induced adaptations that you are wanting to encourage um, to develop this very extreme phenotype? Um, I don't think we know uh, the answer to that question, but if we start to measure this type of uh, thing, we can start to manipulate it, and perhaps that could actually feed through in terms of performance. So I think it's really important from an energy balance perspective, but I think it does go much much further than that. It's also important just from understanding um, the response or, or the, 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 the desired outcome that you're looking for. So um, another area that I find really interesting, uh, as a practitioner in the trenches you know we're often 
in a scenario where you need to sort of predict what the outcome of your intervention is going to be. You want to be able to, um, you know, determine how many sessions per week your client or athlete will need to do. You start working out, you know, your uh, your um, recommendations for nutritional intake, exercise activity, and so on. Um, but ultimately, one thing that often occurs is where the individual... Um, uh, uh, doesn't lose the amount of weight that was predicted. Um, you know, what, and in one of your uh, papers, in fact, it's one of, um, I think you did a letter to the editor on a, on a topic that's related to this where you talk about things like substitution and um, compensation and, and so on. But ultimately, you bring up a point which I think is very important, which people don't often discuss, and that's the, Im- the impact of behavioural compensation. What, maybe you could explain to us what what I mean by that. Yeah. Um, uh, so, so the idea is that um, you introduce um, uh, a new behaviour, in, in this case exercise, but you don't necessarily know how that's going to interact with other aspects of the, the, the behaviour. So we've talked about substitution, this idea that you could be swapping physically one thing for another thing, so that's a direct exchange. Um, but this other idea of behavioural compensation um, relates to the fact that by introducing this new behaviour, you'll change other aspects of the behaviour. And that could be non-exercise physical activity. So some people have talked about this idea that if you introduce exercise, you may then uh, uh, you may then see this situation where that person then reduces other aspects of their behaviour, either deliberately thinking, I've done my exercise, I can sit down more now, or subconsciously they just feel a bit more tired and they end up doing less even less fidgeting but for example so that would be kind of behavioral compensation from a physical activity perspective and then of course there's dietary compensation where people might end up eating a little bit more um, on the back of the uh, uh, the intervention that you put in place and again that could be conscious where people think oh I've done my exercise I deserve a cake or something like that Um, or it could be subconscious where you uh, just feel a bit more hungry because you've lost a bit of energy and you look to replace that um, uh, energy Um, and and this is undoubtedly going to be um, highly variable between people I mean um, the the, the paper I mentioned uh, that you mentioned earlier on the James Levine paper which I think is a wonderful uh, uh, paper relates to this, the kind of, and they have actually got some empirical observations around this, where if you introduce an energy deficit or an energy surplus where you overfeed people, um, some people, uh, if you overfeed them, will end up moving around a bit more um, and burning off some of the surplus that you've given to them and won't gain as much weight um, than other people. Uh, and in the context of an energy deficit, the, the, the reverse, some people can end up conserving energy um, uh, through reducing their NEAT, which will erode the energy deficit that you're trying to put in, 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 in place. So these things can interact to mean that um, in spite of your best efforts to work out what the calculated weight loss would be or the deficit that you're hoping for, for example, um, when you come to do those calculations, you, you, you uh, don't see the results that you were hoping for. And of course, the solution to that is to capture this information to make sure that you've, you, you're measuring that uh, and of course, you could even provide that information back to people, so they could help to they could monitor themselves to see whether they are reducing other aspects of their behaviour, which are going to undermine the benefits that they're that they're, they're looking for. Yeah, you were, you were reading my mind there, Dylan. That's exactly um, where I was going with this. Was 
um, and I've explored this um, many times with various people and you know the phrase that I use is don't test guess in fact I you know I've developed my own um, nutrition nutritionally uh, orientated human performance lab just off this concept is I can't really guess uh, you can have educated guesses um, but even it's not it's not a one-off process although that can be useful to get um, a better understanding as to where you are a bit like a you know a GPS uh, utilizing satellites whereby in this context the satellites your various tests whether it's body composition or RMRs or whatever but you need to constantly track over a period of time and compare back to that baseline to actually start to understand what's going on um, now given that we do actually now have toys and gadgets um, that sure when compared to what you have in your high-end labs may not be the most accurate devices they are nonetheless quite useful for monitoring and, and tracking do you feel that these should now be playing a greater role um, um, you know by not just by individuals but by practitioners I, I do I mean I, I think um, I think it, it, they're relatively cheap now. The costs are coming down, um, and the accuracy and the precision is definitely Im improving. Not not for every single device which is out there, but there are some of them which are quite close to the kind of research tools that we've been using, including research tools for outside the, the laboratory. Um, and like you said, I think um, they're getting to the point where, whilst they might not be perfect, they're absolutely better than nothing. And um, uh, they will give you information if you're a researcher doing a study. They'll give you information if you're an applied practitioner. Uh, they'll give you information if you're uh, just somebody wanting to achieve your goals and you want to try to understand um, uh, which aspects of your behavior are undermining your efforts to achieve those, those goals. Um, so I think I think um, we've got no excuse now. Um, I think in the past we we got away with it um, because it was very difficult to try to get a handle on what people were doing when we weren't watching them. Um, but that's no longer the case. I think we can uh, use these tools and techniques to uh, capture information that that really wasn't possible in in, in the past. So where I mean, you know, given given everything that we've discussed, um, I mean, where where do you think you know, where do you think things are going? I mean, obviously, you guys are at the forefront of this. You're at the leading edge, so to speak. Where, where do you feel we're going with this? Mm. Well, I, I mean, I, I think that um, uh, there will always continue to be room for exercise studies, and they're, they're, they're very uh, important and, and powerful. Um, but I think alongside that, there is room for other types of studies which manipulate this non-exercise activity thermogenesis uh, or NEAT and we can manipulate that by increasing it and looking at the physiological effects from changing that and we can also manipulate this and I know quite a few people are doing this in this study by, by decreasing it by taking it away and people can do that by giving people tools to monitor what they're doing um, uh, people use pedometers for example and get people to reduce their pedometer steps down to 1500 steps a day or something like that um, to simulate a, a low level of non-exercise activity um, other people uh, putting people into bed um, short-term bed rest studies we're involved in a very long-term bed rest study uh, with the European Space Agency in Toulouse which is over two months um, so they're putting people into bed um, other people have put things like casts onto people, so immobilization type studies, which 
are mostly looking at what happens when you take away all of this non-exercise activity, uh, thermogenesis. So I think there's enormous opportunity alongside exercise interventions to this, enormous opportunity to start to manipulate these things and understand exactly how well they stack up against exercise and, and how important they are. And in many cases, I predict that they will be more important than exercise, or at least um, important in, 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 in different ways. So I think that's where we have a wonderful opportunity now, and, and one that really wasn't possible in the past. Um, and um, with these technologies, we can start to answer questions that, that we could have only dreamed of um, even five years ago. So, uh, you know, we're, we're sort of more or less at the end here. I, th- I mean, there's so many things we could talk about because... I did have in my mind, you know, we'd really get into neat non-exercise activity thermogenesis. Um, but actually, uh, I think folks should just read um, the Levine paper and there's loads of other things they can read. Um, um, but, you know, we, we've talked about um, the difference between exercise um, and uh, physical activity as it relates to energy expenditure. But perhaps we could end with you sort of giving a summary, I guess, in a nutshell, um, about the importance of us understanding the differences um, between these two, but but particularly why perhaps we should be focusing on physical activity rather than just exercise. Uh, well, that's quite a challenge. But, I know. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I would come back to the point we talked about earlier, earlier on, that... Yeah. Um, uh, when we study exercise, we're studying, um, uh, you know, one or two percent of a, of a waking week. Um, and um, we need to uh, make sure that we're not neglecting all of this other uh, uh, time. And um, in the fullness of time, we need to um, understand how behavior during that time is important from a metabolic uh, health perspective. But we already know that it's important for lots of outcomes because when we take it away in things like bed rest studies and so on, it will have a very potent effect on a range of different physiological outcomes, whether that's things like muscle mass, fat mass, uh, metabolic health, changes in gene expression in very specific tissues and tissue types and and, and so on. So I think we need to um, uh, understand how we can manipulate that more effectively um, we need to start working better on things like dose response, um, which we haven't done very well to date because we haven't had the, 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 the tools. Um, but at the moment, if I was working uh, uh, either to design future studies or I was working with, with people on an applied basis, I would just be trying to work to incorporate these tools into my day-to-day life, um, whether that's from a research perspective or working with an individual and I think we then need to, um, uh, as a community, um, make sure that we uh, take stock, share our learning, and uh, uh, eventually um, improve our understanding. Uh, because I think this journey is only really just beginning. Absolutely. I, I mean, it's fascinating, this whole topic. And, uh, you know, um, I definitely want to refer... The listeners back to both of your colleagues uh, podcasts um, Javier Gonzalez uh, episode 71 and uh, James Betts episode 79 because I think they're all they all relate to these conversations that we've had today um, and then and, I, and there'll be some topics I, I, I will I will cover in future podcasts that will help build on this 
on this picture. But um, I think it's fair to say, I mean, the, the, the conclusion by most of the guest experts that we have is always that we've barely scratched the surface with this stuff. So people need to be mindful that the faith that they put into all these calculations, you know, um, on energy intake and outtake and so on is at best uh, very basic, isn't it? And we should be careful with that. No, absolutely. I mean, um, I think um, it's very easy, isn't it, to feel as though um, uh, we've got a complete uh, understanding of something when actually suddenly something comes along and shifts that understanding so much that you have to reevaluate um, where you started from. And I think this is one of those uh, one of those examples. And I, I suppose in most areas of research, there will be that continuing evolution and, and, and progress being made and occasionally a big step forward in understanding. So, um, yeah, absolutely agree with that. No, great. Well, you know, thank you, Dylan. It's been uh, brilliant to have you involved on this, um, helping our understanding um, what all this means with, with more clarity, more context. Um, for people who want to learn a bit more about you and your work, I will have, I'll be putting links to uh, various papers. And um, Are you on ResearchGate? I think you are. I, I am. I'm a, yeah. sometimes a bit slow at <laughs> getting things there, but yes, I am. Uh, well, there's too many distractions. You're working too hard, you see. You don't need to be mucking around with social media and stuff. But uh, speaking of which, um, for your Twitter ID for folks that would want to follow you. Uh, yeah, it's um, oh, now you're asking me, uh, Dr. Dylan Thompson, I think. Um, yeah, DR. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll when I tweet the podcast, I'll make sure that's all in there. But um, um, and um, because folks will have heard um, uh, Javier uh, and James already before and after yourself, I think you're going to have lots of people wanting to come study with you. How, how can they learn more about the educational programs that you guys are involved with? Uh, I mean, the, the best thing would be probably to email us in the first instance. Uh, uh, yeah, we have a good community of people doing uh, work ranging from uh, many of the whole body things that we've been talking about today, but including, you know, quite sophisticated molecular stuff at tissue level. So anything anything in between. But um, uh, yeah, no. I, uh, um, and a beautiful, beautiful place to be. I love Bath. It's a gorgeous part of the world. Um, for those of you that haven't been to the UK, but you are coming don't just visit London, go to places like Bath, Edinburgh, they're gorgeous. Um, anyway, look, thank you, uh, Dylan. Um, that brings us to the end of this podcast. If you want to learn more about previous episodes, just go to guruperformance.com um, and you can find links on either our lab or our education site to the podcast. Um, if you want to learn more about um, performance nutrition, uh, you can consider the International Postgraduate ISSN Diploma Program. You can learn about that at issndiploma.com uh, or very specifically if you want to do an MSc in Sport and Exercise Nutrition, um, which is also available to our ISSN Diploma graduates. Um, with me at Middlesex University, you can check that out at uh, guruperformance.com or at Middlesex University's website. Um, so we'll say goodbye to Dylan, and we'll say uh, I'll say goodbye to you all. I, of course, am Laurel Bannock, and we'll bring a, another podcast back to you all very soon.